Almighty God, you breathed life into the man Adam, and you called him forth to bear your image in a life of headship and sacrificial love. Defend us from all the enemies of your church who seek to thrust this truth aside and sustain us by your word and spirit. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. Amen. God's blessings to all of you. Thanks for coming out tonight. Uh, over the course of the year, at least maybe three or four times, we like to invite a uh, special speaker uh, to teach us about, uh, you know, something that we're dealing with uh, in the church and in our community. Um, so very thankful for uh, uh, our friend, Pastor Hammer, who's speaking with us tonight. Um, he uh, will be giving a speech titled, Male and Female, He Created Them. I often uh, remind folks that the big debate in the 16th century was, how can a man be saved? And uh, a lot of ink and, frankly, a lot of blood was spilt on that question. And um, I like to remind folks that in the 21st century, our big question is, what is a man in the first place? Uh, that's the penultimate question. So um, our, our doctrine of, uh, of um, the 16th century and, and everything that went into that uh, loses a lot of meaning if we don't know what a man is in the first place. So, you know, there's an anthropological crisis on our hands, the likes of which we've never, never seen before. What is a man? What is a woman? What is a child? What is a human being? And those are open questions. And, um, you know, I think we have to do a little better than just saying, well, the world has lost its mind, right? Or we live in crazy times. And, uh, you know, there's uh, time for those conversations and there's time to lament. But, you know, at some point, we also have to do better than that, don't we? And uh, there's work that the Lord has given us here uh, to give a cheerful and confident answer to our friends and to our family and in our community. And I recognize that often means putting our, our livelihood on the line in very real ways in our, uh, in our vocation, in our work. But it's, it's worth the risk, frankly, um, because when we, um, when we confess God's truth about marriage between a man and a woman... We're confessing the reality of the marriage between Christ, uh, the bridegroom, and his love for his bride, the church. And so, um, you know, what we're talking about tonight interweaves in all sorts of ways with the confession of the Trinity and the Apostles and Nicene Creed that we confess every Sunday. So I'm so thankful for our friend Pastor Hammer, who's, who's thought about these things in a deep way. He was with us several years ago uh, to give a kind of a general speech on masculinity, and um, we're so thankful for his book, uh, Man Up, A Quest for Masculinity. If you don't have that, it's an excellent, excellent book. Um, but tonight, uh, Pastor Hemmer is going to be speaking a little more directly on the beautiful, glorious distinction between men and women. So let's welcome our friend, Pastor Hemmer. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Larson. That, that is an excellent introduction. 
Um, and, and I intend, at least for the first part, to talk about the, the beauty of the complementarity between men and women. Um, so, three times in Holy Scripture, this, this verse, therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, gets cited. The first, of course, is in Genesis 2. Do you guys bring Bibles? You all have an app on your phone, I'm sure. Would someone read Genesis 2, 24 and 25? So this is, this is the conclusion of the Genesis 2 account of creation, which is very distinct from the Genesis 1 account of creation. In Genesis 1, everything is, is big picture, fast-paced, cosmic. It's from a, a, a divine perspective. So you get God's perspective on creation and everything happens very quickly. It's very poetic. It includes the refrain, there is evening and morning the first day, evening and morning the second day, so on and so forth. Every day concludes with God's declaration of the Lord saw what He had made and it was good and it was good and it was good and it was good. And then in the middle of Genesis 2, or maybe if you back up just a little bit from there, um, towards the beginning of, of Genesis 2, you have a very different account of the creation of man from the account of creation of man on the sixth day in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1, the way the Lord creates is by speaking things into existence. Let us make, let us make, let us, well, no, let there be, let there be, let there be. And then in the middle of day six, a change in the grammar so that away from the let there be to a plural uh, pronoun and also a, a new verb introduced into the account. Now it is, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so uh, verses 26, 27, 28, the Lord God made man in his image, male and female, he created them. But then you get to Genesis 2, and, and it is sort of like dialing in the microscope to look at one small dimension of one particular time of creation. And that is to zoom in on, on the sixth day of creation before man had been made and to, and to focus just on the particular place where God will plant and cultivate a garden. And so at the beginning of Genesis chapter 2, the Lord creates man. And how in Genesis 2 does God create man? No longer by speaking, but from the, from the bottom up perspective, from man's perspective, looking up towards his creator as is, as is the account of Genesis 2. How is man created? 
from, from the dust of the ground, God gets dirt underneath His divine fingernails, forms the man out of the dust of the ground, and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man becomes a living being. And then in verse 18, you come to this arresting declaration where all throughout Genesis 2, every day has ended with, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. Genesis 2, verse 18, has this, this abrupt declaration that it is not good for what? For the man to be alone. And so the Lord God brings the, the parade of all the, other, all the other nephesh, all the other created beings past the man, but not, not one of them is found to be a suitable helper for the man. So the Lord God causes a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And what is the deepest sleep that falls upon man? It is the sleep of death. And out, and out of the, the side of the man... He creates for him a bride and then presents the bride to him. And the first recorded words of mankind are these, at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called Isha, for she was taken out of Ish. And the English preserves this distinction. She is called woman because she was taken out of man. And this this peculiarity in this week in which God has been created all has been creating all things that exist, that is shaped by the reality of another week which you call Holy Week. And on the sixth day of that week, the God who has entered into his creation and become man like men, has become flesh like men. On the sixth day of that week, the same day in that week that God created mankind, on, on the middle of that day, at the noon hour, he's hanging upon the cross, dying. And God causes a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and from his side, he extracts the source material for his bride, draws out blood and water, and if you see in, in classical Christian artwork, the blood pools into the chalice and the water pools into the font. And from these then, the Lord God makes a bride for His Son and presents her to Himself and wakes His Son from the sleep of death, presenting His bride to Him whom He has won in His triumph through and over death. And the man's words at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And then God ends, as St. Moses records it, Therefore, because of all of this, because of this, this change in reality, where a few verses previous the man had been alone, now the Lord solves his loneliness by presenting to him one who is like him but is not the same as he is. And his, his words, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, solves the predicament of his loneliness. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, Matthew 19. Someone turn there and read to us verses 3 to 9. 
So, tough words from Jesus. The Pharisees come to Jesus and they invite him into an ongoing debate between two schools of philosophy in Jewish thought about when it is okay for a man to divorce his wife. The Shimei school is the more liberal school, and they would have said that there are a variety of reasons that a man may divorce his wife, and what matters is that he does it properly, so that he gives her a proper certificate of divorce. The Hillel school would have included just a couple reasons that a man might divorce his wife, but Jesus says, you're both wrong. From the beginning, right, he says the problem is you don't know the scriptures. From the beginning, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he interprets the word of God. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they counter and they say, well then why did Moses allow us to divorce our wives as long as the paperwork is in order? As long as the certificate is properly filled out and the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. And Jesus says, because of the hardness of your heart, that is, because of your sinful condition, God permitted which does not mean that it accords with his eternal divine will, because of your fallen condition, he occasionally allows for divorce because of the predicament of your sinfulness. But from the beginning, it was not so. Hold that in mind. Turn to Ephesians 5. At the end of a long discussion about the roles of wives and husbands, Paul ends with quoting the same verse out of Genesis. Someone read Ephesians 5, 31 to 33. So following Paul's discussion about the roles of of wives and husbands, when he says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord as the church submits to Christ, and husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave gave himself up for her, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing, that he might sanctify her, that is, making her holy even as he is holy. In this way, husbands are to love their wives even as the head loves its own body, nourishes and cherishes its own body. So the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church, and the relationship between heads and bodies, which are connected by a neck, and if they're severed, you're not long for this world, is the example that St. Paul holds up for how husbands and wives are to relate 
to one another. And he concludes all of it with this same quotation from Genesis 2, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The point is this. Hear how normative the account of creation is when Jesus or St. Paul or the church following in their stead wants to discuss the roles of men and women, wants to discuss the function of marriage, the roles given to husbands or wives, the permanence of marriage according to God's design, what do they all default back to? Genesis 2. This pre-fall account of, of what men are and what women are and who they are in relationship with one another as God constitutes them together. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. St. Paul draws on this same text in 1 Corinthians, what is it, 1 Corinthians 6? Um, when speaking about sexual immorality, and he speaks about, therefore do not be united with a prostitute, for the one who is united with a prostitute is united with her in a, in a one flesh kind of union. It's so formative for the church. What God, what God has created in Genesis 1 and 2 before the fall into sin that it norms Christian conduct, Christian ethics, even still today. What the, the distinction between men and women and the goodness of their union that God creates has an eternal binding quality to it. So that when we struggle in our, in our Genesis 3 reality, having been afflicted by the rebellion of Adam and Eve against their Creator, when we struggle, it's not as though we're living towards some new reality. It's rather that we're always struggling to get back to the reality that God created in Genesis 1 and 2. Male and female, He created them. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, I said, I said to some of the students uh, last night at Concordia, Wisconsin, um, that God is not as spiritual as you are. Um, he's much more material, much more physical. So don't hyper-spiritualize this one flesh union. What does it mean that the two will become one flesh? Marriage and? And? From the product of their lovemaking, the product of their marriage. You guys are so spiritual. Babies. Now, not a gift that God gives to all married couples, but when He gives it, He presents the, the visual depiction of their one flesh union to them in the person of a child. They can see what their union entails in the child that is the product of their, of their marital conjugal relations. 
They, they are not quite God in their creative ability, but they ascend nearly to God in their procreative ability. God creates out of nothing. They create out of nearly nothing. They create out of, out of less than human. They make a new human being. Right? So what, what a man contributes, what a woman contributes in that procreative union is less than human. Right? It's a, it's a haploid cell that is only half of the genetic material to make a human being. It's not like your skin cell or your hair cell or your liver cell, which would be a diploid cell, which would contain the full complement of human DNA. In a sperm cell or an egg cell, a man and a woman each contribute only half of a human being. Not quite nothing, but not quite something. And from this nearly nothing, the Lord returns to them when He opens the womb and makes their union fruitful. He returns to them the visual depiction of their one flesh union. The means by which they carry out His command in Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. See, the garden that God plants in Genesis 2 is not a worldwide garden. It's just, it's just a garden in a small center of the world, corner of the world. But He intends for Adam to go out from the garden, exercising His dominion over creation, making the rest of creation flourish as God had caused His garden to flourish and causing man to stand in his place, giving him dominion over creation, the Lord expects him to cultivate the rest of creation in the way that the Lord cultivated creation in the middle of Genesis 2 and planted a garden and caused uh, trees to spring up within it and rivers to flow through it. He expects the man to be doing the same. And, and a part and parcel of that is that he will be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The task is far bigger than Adam could ever undertake, but it's accomplished in this one flesh union by which Adam and his wife, whom only after the fall he will name Eve, the mother of all the living, will, will do by means of, of the children that God grants to them. So, tonight we want to talk about three things. The first is the beauty of this complementarity. The second is the way in which God gives His gifts to mankind, particularly the gifts of marriage and sex and children. And the third is, is what we do with our bodies confesses what we believe about the Lord's creation. So first, towards a beautiful complementarity. In Genesis 1, when the Lord creates man and woman in His own image, He gives them these things to do. 27. So God created man in His own image in the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. 
And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Fill the earth, subdue, have dominion, be fruitful and multiply. How does that fruitful and multiply happen? By their procreative function. The same holds true in in Genesis 2 when God makes a complementary person for the man Adam, but their fruitful and multiply only happens because he is not she and she is not he. Right? So when God in Genesis 2 then, God creates the man out of the dust of the earth and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, but how does he make the woman? Out of, out of a piece of the man. Out of the side of the man, the Lord creates a woman. So she is from him, but she is distinct from him. She is, in Genesis 2, in the language of Genesis 2, no suitable helper is found among all the animals. So the Lord God causes a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And from a piece of the man's side, the Lord makes a helper fit for him. She fits into him, or he into her, to accord precisely with your fifth grade biology textbook. They fit together quite literally like puzzle pieces. They are complementary to one another, both physically, biologically, in, in the procreative act, right? She does what he cannot, and he does what she cannot, but then moreover throughout the rest of their lives as well. In, in that basic biological union that husband and wife have with one another, that reality holds forth in the rest of their lives together as well. He is not she and she is not he. By himself, he is not able to fulfill the command that God gives in Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply. Nor would he be able with another he to fulfill that command, be fruitful and multiply. Had God made she in advance, it would do no good to replicate another she and say, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. The nature of the union between two men or two women is that it is simply not procreative. It does not work to carry out God's command to be fruitful and multiply. It is not a reason for a man to leave his father and mother and be united to another if that procreative possibility is not there. Now we should say, it is the Lord who opens wombs, who gives the gift of children. It's not, it's not incumbent upon Adam or upon Eve to make that decision for themselves. But when the Lord withholds the gift of children... 
It does not remove the procreative possibility of that union. Their union is always open to receiving the Lord's gift of children and thereby fulfilling His command, be fruitful and multiply. What is not given to the man and to the woman is for them to remove themselves from that procreative possibility and to say to the Lord, we desire one of your gifts, but not not the fullness of the gifts, which we'll get to in, in the second point of our lecture tonight. But it it does not work. It simply is impossible for for two men to have a procreative union or for two women to have a procreative union. At least so far, science has been unable to take two ovum and to make a human being therefrom or to take two sperm cells and to make a human being therefrom. Even in homosexual relationships, when they desire to conceive and give birth to a child, someone must be a sperm donor or someone must be an egg donor in order for those unions to be, quote, fruitful. It simply does not work any other way. This is the nature of what the Lord has constituted, that he puts two distinct human beings in relationship with one another so that their union might be fruitful and so that they might enjoy the company and the companionship of one another, each one who is similar yet distinct from the other. Right? So a man does not need a man to love in this erotic union between husband and wife. A woman does not need a woman to love in this erotic union between husband and wife. A man needs one who is like him but not him. He needs a she and she needs a he. The only way the the command in Genesis 1 can be carried out is between a husband and a wife bound together by the Lord according to Jesus in Matthew 19 for a lifelong union. What the Lord has bound together, no one has the right to separate. So before the church loses the argument about homosexual marriage, right, way before she gives up that ground, she gives up the ground on things like no-fault divorce. Saying two people who, who somehow fall out of love for one another without any sin against their marital vows may decide that they no longer want to be faithful to those vows that they made. Want no more the Lord's binding together action upon their lives and so therefore may choose to separate. Well well before the church lost any ground in, in the same-sex pseudogamy argument, the church lost the ground when when she gave up the fight against no-fault divorce. Right? It is the Lord Jesus who says, what the Lord God has joined together, let not man put asunder. It is never the Lord's intention for two people who stand before His altar and make vows to one another for, for either of those people to be able to break their vows. 
That union never ends except by sin. On his part or her part or both of their parts. But no-fault divorce is, is absolutely a misnomer. If the church gives into it, it is, it is really a two-fault divorce. Each party in that union being responsible for the breakup of what God has joined together. In their complementarity. Then in Genesis 2, look at the roles given to each one. Fifteen, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds and the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. He makes the woman to be, to fill what role for the man? Helper. And the man fills what role? Not explicitly stated here in Genesis 2, elsewhere stated throughout Scripture. Head. Makes the man to be the head and the woman to be the helper which means that God loves which of the sexes more than the other? That's a fool's question. Which of the sexes does Adam love more than the other? We're still in Genesis 2, pre-fall. No sin yet. Does, does Adam love the woman or the man more? He loves the woman more. He loves her. He serves her. He exists for her good. And which of the sexes does the woman love more? She loves her husband more. And she loves the idea of what that one flesh union will bear in her life. The prospect of children, offspring, to nurture, to give life to. See, it's only after Genesis 3 when selfishness enters into the Lord's creation when, when the man could ever even recalculate his answer to that question, which of the two sexes does God love more? Well, then Adam will say, of course it's the man. God's a misogynist. Um, he loves men. He's made me the head. You'll do what I say, woman. Right? And the woman recalculates her answer to the question, which, which of the sexes does God love more? And, and it's obviously her then. That's, that's the product of sin. Causes the man to be focused on the man and the woman to be focused on the woman. 
It's not a question of which is more important in terms of complementarity. For the Lord God to say one is the head and one is the helper implies not a, a priority of one sex over the other, not an affection of the Lord God for one sex over the other, but merely implies a difference in roles given to the man and to the woman. That is, in fact, what the word helper means. Throughout the rest of scriptures in the Psalms, the Lord God will call himself man's helper. The name Lazarus means the Lord is my helper. So helper is not a slur or a byword. If the Lord is not afraid to appropriate that title even for himself, it simply means one who does what the other cannot. And in that word helper, you find this treasure, this beautiful complementarity between man and woman that exists only because he is not the same as she, nor she the same as he. Because they are different from one another, because they can carry out different God-given roles, because each is loved and treasured in a distinct kind of way, they can carry out God's command to all mankind to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and to exercise dominion over His creation. Right? The egalitarians, this is the antithesis of complementarianism. Complementarianism is the idea that men and women, while equally loved by the Lord, are given different roles by the Lord. The antithesis to this is egalitarianism, which though it has the root for the word equal, does not mean that men and women are merely equal. In fact, it means that men and women are interchangeable. And egalitarianism is the product of feminism, which says anything a man can do, a woman can do. Anything a woman can do, a man can do. A man doesn't need a woman. A woman doesn't need a man, which is a bankrupt kind of philosophy. If you separate men and women from one another, the human race is extinct within one generation. What a woman can do, that is, cultivate life within her body, a man is simply incapable of doing. Even if you perform surgeries on him supposedly to alter his, his biological sex, you, you simply cannot make a man capable of bearing within his body, giving life within his body to a brand new human being. You cannot make him capable of sustaining that new human being by means of his body nourishing and sustaining that human body. Nor, on the other hand, can you make, even if, even if you alter her by means of surgery, nor can you make a woman's body capable of fathering a child. They do very distinctly different things, and this is the beauty of their complementarity. And the complementarity inherent within the marriage bed, that is that they fit together quite literally like puzzle pieces in order to fulfill God's command to be fruitful and multiply, bears forth in the rest of their lives as, as male and female. So men and women are distinctly different. A woman will never be a husband. A man will never be a wife. A woman will never be a father. A man will never be a mother. 
There's a distinction in the marriage roles given to men and women. There's a distinction in the parenting roles given to men and women. There's even a distinction in the roles of children given to men and women. A boy will never be a girl. A girl will never be a boy. They are delightfully distinct from one another. The ways in which boys interact with boys is very different from the ways in which girls interact with girls. For that matter, the ways in which boys interact with girls is very different from the way in which boys interact with boys. And conversely, the way in which girls interact with boys is very different from the way in which girls interact with girls. There's a, a beauty to the Lord's creation that you may rest comfortably within. Men don't need to strive to be like women. Women don't need to strive to be like men. Their bodies are very different from one another. The roles given to each one is very distinct. Even the way in which their bodies grow. A man with, with ten times the testosterone in his body will naturally grow up to be stronger and broader shouldered than, than his female counterpart. A woman will naturally grow wider hips and grow breasts in order to be able to give life to another creature by means of her body. Her femininity is, is internal to her body. A man's masculinity is always external to himself. He's always giving of himself in order to be masculine. She's always receiving into her body in order to be feminine. The distinction between biblical masculinity and biblical femininity is confessed in the biological distinction between the two. A man gives, a woman receives. A man sacrifices of himself, goes outside of himself in order to, in order to fulfill his calling to be fully masculine, a woman receives into her body and then within her body cultivates and nourishes a life that she will nurture once her body brings it forth into the world. A clear distinction between the two. And in that distinction, there's, there's an eternal goodness, an eternal beauty such that in Ephesians 5, when, when St. Paul says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, what he's been talking about in the preceding verses is the roles of husbands and wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Women, submit to your husbands as the church submits to the Lord. There's an inherent goodness in this distinction between what men and women are given to do. And in the resurrection, we're not less male or less female than we are in this life, but we are, if you are male now, fully male in the resurrection, and if you are female now, fully female in the resurrection. Admittedly, Jesus' peculiar words that in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given into marriage means that the union between husbands and wives is somehow transformed in the resurrection. 
How precisely, we don't know, but their conjugal union seems to be brought to an end in the resurrection so that they might more fully enjoy the joy of, of the fullness of God's redeemed company in the resurrection, but men nevertheless remain men, and women nevertheless remain women in the resurrection. And what's your proof of that? When he rises from the dead, Jesus is a man. He does, he does not become some androgynous, amorphous, indistinct male or female creature. He is, as he was in life, fully man. And so also the church, fully feminine, in her representation of all the feminine virtues, in her depiction of all her perfect biblical femininity, the church always remains feminine. This distinction is created by God even before the fall and endures all the way into the resurrection. It's corrupted by the fall in our ability to live it out, but it's resolved in the resurrection. A word about patriarchy. Somebody have Ephesians 3? <clears throat> if you do, can you read verses 14 to 19 for us? Great. Now, if you, have, if you have a version that has uh, textual footnotes to it, not a study Bible, just a note, you'll see there in verse 15, the word family, does it have a little, a little superscript number there? And then it directs you to the bottom of the text, and what's the note there say? Anybody have this? I think ESV and NIV are the same. But if you're looking on a smartphone, maybe you don't have notes. Yeah. Or fatherhood. So the Greek word there is patria. Um, and it says, I, for this reason I bow my knee to the father, the pater, from whom all patria is named. Now the English translators... Uh, make an interpretive move here, and that is to translate the word patria, which might mean family or fatherhood or country, into one of those three. But then, blessedly, they give you the footnote that says it also might mean fatherhood. Now you, now you see the wordplay that St. Paul is doing here. For this reason, I bow my knee to the pater, 
from whom all patria, all plural, fathers are named. It's not the other way around. It's not that God makes earthly fathers and so that you might understand what God is like, he says, hey, it's like I'm a father. And you guys can understand that, right? Because some of you are fathers, and if I call myself a father, then you can understand what I am like. It's in fact the opposite. God is eternally father, and anyone whom he calls father derives his identity from the one who is eternally father. So God has been the first person of the Trinity has been father since when? Since he had a son. And how long has he had a son? Right? This is the Arian controversy very early in the church. And the Arians say that the son is not eternal with the father. That if we say that the father begot the son, what we mean is at some point there was a father who didn't have a son. Now you can see how the logic breaks down um, and, and the Cappadocian fathers pick up on this argument and they say if we call him father then he must always have a son. He must always have this relationship in order to be identified as father. So while the Arians say there was a time when the Son or the Logos was not, that is, He's not eternal, in order to defend the divinity of the Father, the Orthodox Christians argue that there's never a time when the Son was not. The Father is always the Father and the Son is always the Son. He is the only begotten Son of God, but He is the eternally begotten Son of God. So when was He begotten? From eternity. He exists without beginning. Just as the Father exists without beginning, if you call Him Father, then you must also be confessing that He has a Son who is eternally begotten. Fatherhood exists with God before it exists with men. This is what St. Paul is saying. When God calls men fathers, He's naming them by His identity and not the other way around. He's not giving you a window by which you can understand what God is like because you understand what earthly fathers are like. He's rather identifying earthly fathers in their calling as fathers according to what He is eternally like, the Father. From Him all fatherhood derives. All fatherhood is named. When He calls you Father, He's giving you a part of His eternal identity and not the other way around. And that's the argument St. Paul is making here in Ephesians 3, almost as a kind of throwaway, an aside comment on the rest of what he's saying. For this reason I bow my knee to the Father from whom all fatherhood is named as if it's understood by his audience that the Father is eternally Father and all earthly fathers are named Father because of him. Now this is to say, if he is eternally 
father that patriarchy is the structure of the cosmos. It's not, it's not something accidental to the Lord's creation. It's intrinsic. It's written into the blueprint of creation that there is a Father above all the rest of creation. If you have suffered from the patriarchy, if you think the patriarchy is a thing to be smashed, what you need is not to smash the patriarchy, but to become more intimately aware of your heavenly Father under whose patriarchy it is never to your disadvantage to live. It is always good for you to live under the fatherhood of God Himself. And in His fatherhood, He, he, he appoints all other earthly fathers to rule over us for our good. In the way that He is Father for our good, so all earthly fathers, and the large catechism will explain this includes biological fathers, and it includes fathers of the state, and it includes spiritual fathers, those whom we call pastors. They all rule over us in this divine patriarchy that is the pattern of the world, the, the blueprint of the cosmos, in which the Lord intends His creation to function and to flourish. You can't, you simply cannot smash the patriarchy. To do so is, is to be an atheist. And, and then you haven't actually smashed the patriarchy. You've only excluded yourself from it by means of unbelief. Atheism. And then it never goes well for you. Now, the Lord's patriarchy is a benevolent patriarchy. Under the fatherhood of God, it is good for you to live. Under the fatherhood of a biological father who knows the pattern of God the Father and intends to emulate His fatherhood, it is good for you to live. Under the fatherhood of a prince, a governor, a whoever, who knows the fatherhood of God and intends to model his patriarchy after God the Father, it is good for you to live. Under the fatherhood of a pastor who knows the fatherhood of God and intends to model his pastorate according to the fatherhood of God, it is good for you to live. But there is, at the end of the day, only one father who is good and all other fathers live in His shadow with their sinful flesh, of course. But patriarchy is the structure that God has built His creation around. Three gifts God gives. Marriage, sex, and children. How long are we going? We didn't rent this, this space for the time. Yeah. All right, good. There's no, uh, no landlord coming to throw us out in a minute. All right, well, let's get on with it, nevertheless. Uh, God, God gives His gifts 
um, as He intends to give them and not as we intend to receive them. So, for instance, His gift of marriage and sex and children, He gives as, as a package deal. In Genesis 1 and 2, He gives the woman to the man and in giving her to Him, enables the two of them together to fulfill His command to be fruitful and multiply. And how will they be fruitful and multiply? Yeah, and what does that mean? They will have sex. Thank you. Um, And God in His wisdom has made sex pleasurable. This is a, a peculiar thing. He makes it pleasurable for a husband and wife to engage in. He attaches an intense pleasure to this union that they have with one another, which you call orgasm. And he gives more nerve endings in in the reproductive organs than he gives in the fingertips. He intends his union between a husband and a wife to be pleasurable for both participants. A woman has, has sexual organs that serve no other function than, than the pleasure of the union between a husband and a wife. Part of the man's reproductive organs similarly serve no function except to give him pleasure in the union with his wife. This is, this is the Creator's design in all of His wisdom and the beauty of His creation, He intends for you to delight in the union with your wife, in the union with your husband. And in His wisdom then, when He opens up the womb and He makes that union fruitful, He intends to give to you children when He makes that union fruitful. And He intends that union to be a lifelong bond one with another. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And the more the biologists dig into the question, the more they find that the greatest happiness, the greatest sense of fulfillment is found only in this lifelong union between a man and a woman. Right? They, in union with one another, they release pitocin, which is called the pair bonding hormone, um, which you get more of with more skin-to-skin contact, and, and which you release even more of at the time of orgasm. So God, God causes two people who have this intimate relationship with one another that, that climaxes in the potential for receiving a child to feel more bound together, more closely knit together than any other people in the world, in His wisdom. But see, we in our foolishness want to pit the gifts of God against one another. We want to say, well, maybe, maybe we like the, the feeling of the sex, but we don't like the commitment of the marriage. Or maybe we like the commitment of the marriage, but we think we need some fur babies before we're ready to commit to receiving the Lord's gift of children. 
Or maybe we like the children, but we're not ready for the marriage. Or maybe we like the children, but we're not ready for the sex. And so we need to rely on the, bio the biologists to accomplish that goal for us, right? And it never ends well for us when we begin to pit the gifts of God against one another. The Lord intends marriage to be lifelong. He intends marriage to be procreative. And he intends that procreative union to be enjoyable for his people. He knits them all together for our good. And when we begin pitting the gifts of God against one another, all that we end up are broken families and broken hearts. This is, this is how the Lord gives his gifts. And, and to those who would say that, you know, children are a burden, maybe you should learn how to feed and water a dog before you have to learn how to feed and water a child, uh, the answer is, of course, children are a burden. Um, but, but the burdens the Lord gives are always a blessing. Um, and, and there's no one in our affluent society who, who simply cannot afford another child should the Lord intend to give it. We ought simply remove ourselves from that decision-making process, telling the Lord we're ready to receive his blessings or to reject his blessings. Ordinarily. For most for most married couples. What about our bodies? We live, we live in, a, in a, an exceedingly dysphoric age where no one is happy with his body, right? Everyone thinks he's too fat or too short or too tall or too pimply or too hairy, or too bald, or too feminine, or too masculine, or whatever, right? No one has the kind of perfect harmony with his body that existed before the fall into sin. What happens in Genesis 3? After they sin, the man's eyes and the woman's eyes immediately decline to themselves. And they observe something about themselves that makes them ashamed. They observe that they are naked and therefore they have shame in the presence of one another. It's not that they're more naked after the fall, but it's rather that their self-awareness makes them ashamed. They are experiencing bodily dysphoria. So it's no surprise then that this, that this kind of dysphoria should continue to plague us in, in whatever way it raises our heads in our generation. Men who feel like they are really women inside or women who feel like they are really men inside, who feel like the, the Creator has gotten something wrong, are no different from Adam and Eve in that moment who notice that in the presence of one another they are naked and ashamed. They are experiencing a bodily dysphoria. Even if today we call it gender dysphoria, it's an incongruity between what the mind says and what the eye sees in the body. And this is not, this is not the product of the Lord's creation. It is rather the product of sin. And the solution is not, not to alter the body, 
but rather to align the mind with the will of God. What we do with our bodies is either in congruity with the Lord's creation or in discontinuity with the Lord's creation. Either we are, we are speaking the truth with our bodies or we are speaking a lie with our bodies. And this, this is more than just whether we, we believe ourselves to be the biological sex that we see when we, look, when we stand naked in front of a mirror and look at ourselves, but, but this has to do with a, whole, with a whole host of things. We find ourselves incongruous with, with the Lord's will for our lives in, in a variety of ways. Our, our internal thoughts are, are constantly misaligned with the Lord's will for how we ought to use our bodies, right? There's a similar kind of dysphoria that someone with, with a, a, a proclivity to, to any kind of sexual sin experiences that one experiencing sexual gender dysphoria is experiencing. A misalignment between what the body is given for and what one in the mind or the conscience knows the Lord has created the body to do and to be for. So what we, what we do with our bodies, how men comport themselves as men and women comport themselves as women, is confessing the goodness of our created reality, even and sometimes in spite of what we, what we believe within our heads. That there is an eternal reality that's greater than what we perceive in, in our thoughts or in our feelings. And what we do with our bodies ought to align rather with the Creator's intent for our bodies and not with our whatever it is dysphoric understanding of, of how our bodies might fit in, into the created realm. So this is Saint, uh, or uh, not Saint, uh, we don't call popes saints, some of them we do. Um, pope John Paul II speaks this way when talking about contraception, for instance, that, that our bodies are, are always either speaking according to the grammar of our creation or speaking outside the grammar of creation. That is, we're either always telling a truth with our bodies or telling lies with our bodies. So letting our bodies function as they were intended, and here John Paul II means letting the natural procreative function lead to the, the, the gift of children when the Lord intends us to receive gift the gift of children, would be telling the truth with our bodies, but thwarting that natural procreative function of our bodies by means of some kind of barrier or, or chemical inhibitor of the body's natural function, treating fertility as a disease to be medicated against, would be telling a lie with our body. But we could say the same about, about all of our bodily reality, that God intends your sexual organs to be used for the pleasure of your spouse and the potential procreation of children in his creation and any other use of them from that that reason that he has given them to you, that reason that he has created them and intricately designed them in the way that he has would be to tell a lie with your body. So, 
What are we saying? There's a, there's a goodness to being a man. And there's a goodness to being a woman. And this goodness pre-exists the fall into sin. It is distorted by sin, and you struggle with a world that wants to downplay the differences between men and women, that wants to treat men and women as interchangeable cogs in a machine, as, as not just the same, but as interchangeable with one another. And this is never an advantage to your humanity. The humanity that you, somewhere in the recesses of your mind, in the depths of your DNA, you remember from creation, and that in the incarnation and crucifixion and resurrection of the God who became man, you know to be your final reality in the resurrection, in which you will be fully human in a way that you are not now. Now, your humanity is corrupted by sin. You are less than human. Your human nature is, is still good, and God hasn't created the sin that corrupts your humanity, but it nevertheless renders you, renders your desires, renders your will, renders all of the way in which you perceive the world around you as subhuman. And God's design for you is that you might be fully human in the resurrection when you will be fully man, fully woman, even as the Lord Jesus in becoming man made himself fully man, even as the Lord's church in being identified as our Lord's bride is fully woman, even as Christ gives you the example of what it means to be fully masculine and His church gives you the example of what it means to be fully feminine, so will you be in the resurrection. Do we have some time for questions? Yeah, my pleasure. It's so uh, refreshing and enjoyable to hear um, the truth about God's Word and His will for our lives and uh, um, how enjoyable to hear that it's good to be a man, right? And that it's Unless you're not one. A woman, right, right, yeah. that's right. <laughs> um, Say, so yeah, I'd like to spend about 15 or 20 minutes for questions, and uh, after that... Um, I'd like to depart with the hymn, and then I'd like to invite everyone downstairs for treats and refreshments. So, who's first? Isaac, uh, Levi. Uh, so, uh, so, I know this is a little bit, I don't know, but I was wondering, like, uh, your position on birth control in the general sense and regarding like God's will for a couple or in that sense, I don't know. Yeah, so uh, I think that's time, right? We're done? Uh, all right, so right out of the gate. Um, ordinarily, 
Christian couples should be open to the Lord's gift of children. Not every couple fits the paradigm of the ordinary, however. So, some are afflicted with disease or medical afflictions that, that would cause a couple to have to make the difficult decision to say no to, to that procreative possibility that is inherent in every union between a husband and a wife. So, I, I'm not going to go so far as to say that contraception, contraception is sinful, um, but the mentality in which couples use it may be sinful. Um, there, there may be some cases in which it's necessary, um, and in those cases, I would say, talk to a doctor and talk to your pastor. Um, but on the whole, married Christian couples should be open to, to the Lord's gift of new life. Um, which, is, which is always hard. Um, we, have, we have eight children, and ha- having eight children is really hard. Um, <laughs> It, it just is. Uh, I think, you know, a year ago, we, we were trying to tell ourselves that having eight children is no more difficult than having seven children. But having eight children is more difficult than having seven children. Um, and yet, right? There's, what, what does Jesus say about unrighteous wealth? Use unrighteous wealth in order to make friends for yourselves who will welcome you into the eternal dwellings. Um, and, and what closer friends will you have in the resurrection than your children. Um, so all of your unrighteous wealth can and should be spent for the, the rearing of your children in the faith so that they will welcome you into the eternal dwellings on the day of our Lord's return. Um, that's, that's the big category answer. Um, if, if there are particulars, talk to your doctor and talk to your pastor. But you will, never, you will never look at one of your children and say, I wish we didn't have that one. <laughs> right? You, your, your trials will be increased, but so will your joy. And so much more your joy than your trials. Um, and what you are doing now in this veil of tears is just a blink of an eye compared with eternity. presentation uh just one thought in terms of oh just welcoming your thoughts actually um so one of the things that is more recent that i don't think there's been much in the way of addressing it um is voluntary single motherhood so it's the yeah is the uh, woman who is unmarried or is divorced who decides to be inseminated by another man, either artificially or, I suppose, naturally, but usually artificially, and then conceive a child and raise the child on her own. Um, I, I know of one particular person, I'm not speaking, obviously, of, I'm going to tell you who, but um, not a member of my church, but um, 
the pastor of that church said, well, there's nothing in the Bible that says it's wrong, so go ahead. Um, when she saw, and she obviously went to him for counsel. So what would you give as a answer instead of what this guy said? Because what he said was rather idiotic, honestly. So in the garden before the fall, God, God imbues every child, even though there are no children before the fall, right? Nevertheless, it's, it's a natural right of every child who will be born before the fall into sin to have a mother and a father. Um, so I think there's, for, for a woman, now, so we'll distinguish between a woman who, you know, is in a marriage and she has a child and her husband's beating her and, and so in, in that abuse, he has broken his marriage vows against her and, and she, she has to divorce or separate or whatever, right? That's a, a different animal from a woman who has no husband and who desires to have a, children, a, a child, children, whatever, um, right? She's doing the same thing. She's, she's pitting the gifts of God against one another that I can, I can enjoy the gift of children without the gift of marriage or without the gift of sex. And that never ends well for her or for her children. Um, her children have a God-given right to a father, and she owes it to her children to do everything she can to see that they are raised by their father. And to start right out of the gate by denying them that, I think is absolutely sinful. Now, maybe, you know, if she's not informed of the sin, then maybe the sin is upon the pastor who should have warned her better. Um, but it's, it's, not, it's not good, right? Uh, it's, it's not the way God has created his, his world to function. Before he creates a church, before he creates a state, he creates the family. Um, and the family is mother, father, and children. Um, and, and it's not up to us to decide which of those components of the family um, are optional. The Lord will decide that. Right. Right. If you start, if you start in Genesis, it certainly is. Yeah, yeah. When I, I think we we don't do ourselves any favors by trying to derive ethics from from anything in between, anything that's not law between you know Genesis three to Revelation eighteen. Um, you know, we we derive a sense of ethics from what God created in the, in the beginning and what will be in the resurrection. Um, and that's how we know what's, what's good are the eternal things that God creates. And the family is one of those. The roles of mother and father, the roles of children towards their parents and parents toward their children are the, one of those eternal things that God creates. So we ought never order our lives in a way that's out of concert with the resurrection. Yeah. Not you. Behind you. Straight line behind you. <laughs> um, 
First of all, thank you for that wonderful talk. I, uh, I also went to the talk last night at uh, CUW and I really liked it. Um, my question was, do the Roman Catholics get their um, theology of marriage as a sacrament from the symbolism of Christ on the cross and the, the sacramental symbolism of the water and the blood coming out of the side of Christ on the cross? So uh, Roman Catholics consider marriage a sacrament because they don't start with our definition of what a sacrament is. Um, so Lutherans are, are never dogmatic about sacraments because there's no definition for what a sacrament is given in the Bible. We sort of have a gentleman's agreement that a sacrament is a thing that God commands that has a visible element and bestows his gift of forgiveness. Um, and so we, we generally say that means, you know, two or three things. Um, I like to number absolution among the sacraments because I think I am visible um, and, and hope you all agree. Uh, uh, but, you know, and that's, that's what Article 13 of the Augsburg Confession says too, um, that, that Lutherans just aren't dogmatic about a number, right? So here's what we have. We have baptism, we have the Lord's Supper, we have absolution. Um, but if you want to talk about prayer, maybe there's a, a sacramental way to speak about prayer, um, although it's not visible, but, you know, so what? Um, you want to talk about ordination? Well, there's a way in which ordination's kind of sacramental, but not, you know, it doesn't bestow forgiveness, but it's a means by which God may bestow forgiveness. And you want to talk about, you know, marriage, okay, well, there's a, a way in which husbands and wives together forgive one another, but you're not missing out on any forgiveness if you don't get married. So, you know, Lutherans just, just aren't, the number of sacraments is never a hill Lutherans are going to die on. But if you want to talk about the sacramental nature of marriage or the, the right of holy matrimony, Lutherans will be all on board with that. Um, and we will talk about the distinction between holy matrimony as the Lord gives it and does it and, and marriage as, as, you know, like bridal catalogs and wedding planners do it. Um, Alrighty, uh, there we go. It is working. Awesome. So uh, I should have written this down and I didn't. So if somebody has a Bible and pull out Genesis three sixteen, that would be great. Hmm. Uh, my question is, what do you make of specifically the uh, phrasing, "Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you"? Um, and then also some versions that I was finding uh, also say, uh, "Contrary to your desire." Oh, perfect. Thank you. Uh, to the woman, he said, "I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring." forth children, mm -hmm. your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Yeah, so, so that contrary to your husband is kind of the strongest translation, interpretation you could make out of that. Um, your desire will be against your husband, um, and he will rule over you, or your desire will be somehow adversative towards your husband. So what does any of that mean? Um, I think we understand it in light of the previous statement that God gives, in pain you will bring forth children. So part of her natural relationship with creation is fraught with the consequence of sin. So now only by means of pain, which is quite 
literally a life and death experience? Will she, will she do what her body was created to do? And I think in light of that, we can understand the, the second part of the curse also to be saying the same thing, that what, what her body naturally wants to do, that is live in, in rightly ordered submission underneath her husband, now will come only by means of the cross. It will be a trial for her to submit to um, a guy who just wanted to throw her under the bus, right? Like Adam was just a colossal jerk in the fall, um, and, and yet that doesn't abrogate her call to submit to him. It just means that he's less worthy of her submission than before. But she still has to submit to him. Um, so it's all human relationships are broken by the fall. We all live underneath the cross now and, and have to bear the suffering that accompanies the callings God gives us, right? So if you're a wife and, and your husband is a jerk, um, nevertheless, God joins two people together and does not intend them to be separated. Sometimes separation happens, sometimes divorce happens, sometimes it's, it's the sinful part of one party, sometimes it's the sinful part of both parties, but what he intends is repentance and living together in that order that he has given. Um, but, but because there, there's only one perfect husband, and Adam is not it, nor any are the sons of Adam it, it will always be a cross for a woman to live underneath that kind of relationship. Your desire will be for your husband or for your husband's place, and he will rule over you or he will lord it over you. Um, I think we, we only understand the nuance of that half of the sentence in light of the first part of the curse that God gives, which is, in pain, you will bring forth children. It's still God's goodwill for a woman to bring forth a child, but now it's fraught with pain. It's still God's will for a, a woman to live in submission under her husband, but now it's fraught with pain. I'd just like to, just because I have a mic, I'd like to add that 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 Thanks, curse, save me. Yeah, that the curse and the pain that God intends something good to remind the woman in a unique way in her vocation, as he will do with a man, that he'll eat by the sweat of his brow, that it is a, a reminder and a preaching of her and his need for Christ and a Savior uh, living with that curse. So it has a restorative function in terms of, in that it points them to their need for uh, for Christ and forgiveness and for restoration and a, and a savior. I can take one more. Excellent. One thanks more, thanks uh, for giving us the gospel. Yeah. <laughs> one more question. Temesh. <laughs> we'll do, we'll do First off, thank you very much for coming and speaking tonight. I really appreciate it. I think everyone else does as well. Um, my, you've spoken beautifully about God's gift of marriage and how men and women are to relate in a marriage union as someone who's not married yet, um, God willing, eventually, but uh, what does the scripture say about those who have not been given the gift of marriage and any particular roles they have as men or women who are unmarried? Um, yeah, so there, there's a difference between those to whom the, 
the gift of celibacy has been given um, and who never desire marriage and those to whom the gift of celibacy has not been given but who are seeking a spouse. Um, for both of them, chastity is, is what's required, is what's given to them by the sixth commandment. So for those single and not desiring marriage or single and desiring marriage, the sixth commandment makes it incumbent upon them to guard their neighbor's marriage. Even for those who are married, right? Your, your calling in the sixth commandment is to guard your neighbor's marriage. If you're married, your wife's marriage is the marriage that you are to guard principally. Um, but so there's, there's a, a way in which we, we live towards that calling. So if God has called us to singleness, then, then we honor that and we respect that by, um, by speaking rightly of his gift of marriage, by honoring his gift of marriage, and by celebrating the marriage between Christ and his church, in which all Christians are a part, um, if we're single and desiring marriage, then, then we honor marriage by, by praying for a future spouse, by, by honoring all women we meet as someone's potential spouse, someone's future spouse, um, by, by living chaste and decent lives in, in what we say and do, and, and looking forward towards that eventual marriage should God someday give it, which he, he may not, right? Um, it's, it's just like children. We ought not ever say no to the Lord's gift of children, um, but he may not ever give them. We ought not say no to his gift of marriage if, if we are so inclined, but he may not ever give it. So we live towards that ideal by, by celebrating the, the chastity that he gives us in the moment by means of his son, by means of the forgiveness that he doles out to us in the marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. In this Christian church, the catechism says, he daily and richly forgives my sins and the sins of all believers. So I think, I think we ought to, um, and this is not, it's not just an individual endeavor either. It's, it should be a corporate endeavor. I think parents should be looking for spouses for their children, and your friends should be looking for a spouse for you, and, and the church should be looking for a spouse for you all while, while you are doing the same. Um, and and you'll, never, you'll never find the perfect spouse You'll only know that you've married the right girl when, when at the altar the Lord joins you together. Then, then you and she are right for one another. Before that, you're not. Um, but when he says, I put these together, then you are, you are bound to that one and she is bound to you. Um, so we live, we live towards that ideal. And we, we should just get out, of, get out of the idea of thinking that, you know, there's like one perfect person in the world or that I can't love a girl if she's got a crooked nose or the wrong color hair or, or some other nonsense, right? Um, there's, there's a certain kind of arrogance there that, that we have to get over um, and receive the gift of a spouse as the Lord may give it, even, even if it's not how we envision things working out. I don't know even at this point what your question was. <laughs> uh, Thank you either way. Yeah. <laughs> that was, yeah. Can I, can yeah I, the, the, the other half of that question is outside of anything related to marriage, just as far as society goes, as far as my role as just 
a single guy. Well, yeah. Actually, single right now. But as as a guy walking around, is there is there anything that's given for me to do that I ought to do that has not been given to women, or vice versa? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, your your calling is always to be manly, um, and so now as an unmarried man, um, your call and and I think. If you, if you reduce masculinity down to its essence, it's sacrifice, which I told the group of students last night at Concordia Mequon. Um, and so your calling to be sacrificial now is, is broader than it will be in the future, right? Now you can live sacrificially for your neighbor. You can live sacrificially for your country. You can live sacrificially for a whole host of people until God puts you in a relationship with a, with a, with a woman, a wife. Then your calling to live sacrificially for your neighbor has to be tempered by your living sacrificially for her. So right now there's a sense in which, you know, you can do anything in that manly, sacrificial kind of way. You can, you can serve your community. You could, you could be a soldier. You could, you could be a, you know, a, a special operations soldier where the likelihood of getting killed is even higher. Um, what, what's that? Or sailor. Or sailor, yeah. Uh, we got to remember our sailors as they're sitting in the front row. Um, you, you could do any of those things now because you don't have a call to serve a wife and children at this moment. So you're still called to be manly, still called to be sacrificial in, in the image of Christ, um, but as long as God hasn't put you in those other relationships, you have a little more latitude in how you do that. Thank you. Uh, the uh, 21st century has set, certainly brought a lot of amazing advancements but it's also certainly brought a lot of, albeit atrocities, in which we now see. Rise yeah, what do you mean? Of abortion. <laughs> I'm just and, kidding. <laughs> uh, you know. Yeah, tra- yeah. We live in a very confused world. And, and no argument for me. Uh, mutilation sur- surgeries for younger and younger yeah. children. Um, but I, in my own experience, I found that one of the ways to not be caught so caught off guard is to remember the verse in Ecclesiastes, in which we're told that there is nothing new under the sun, and this has led me to some research in which things such as, you know, child sacrifice and cross-dressing have not been things that are unfamiliar to our history, uh, or the history of um, religions that Christianity has contended with. You brought up that um, uh, gender and dysphoria and body dysmorphia have been an integral part of the human experience, and I was hoping that you might uh, elaborate on that so that might have a little bit of the wisdom of the ages that we often find that helps us contend with such yeah. atrocities. Yeah, so I also want to say we are, we are experiencing it in a way unlike cultures previous to us ever have. Um, so there is nothing new under the sun, and everyone since Adam's fall into sin has been subject to some kind of dysmorphia living in, in his flesh, um, that he's, he's seen himself incongruous with, with his physical reality. This is a result of the fall. But 
Um, we live in a world where, um, for instance, young women especially are, are being drawn into the transgender movement um, at, at a rate way disproportional to those statistics have, have ever been throughout history, um, right? So I think one of the, one of the most telling um, treatments of this is a book by a secular Jew who is uh, a, an advocate of the transgender movement, right? So she's no ally of conservative Christianity in any regard. Um, Abigail Schreier, um, the book is Irreversible Damage, and she is highly critical of what she calls rapid onset gender dysphoria, which is when, when a young woman um, has a friend or a girl has a friend who identifies as transgender, she thinks she's a boy, um, there is a much higher likelihood for her friends to identify similarly than, than if she had no such peer influence upon her. So, why? Um, well, I, I think Schreier is, is prescient in this, and I think she rightly presses her finger on a lot of the issues. Like, who would want to be a girl in society today when, when men are allowed to be sort of predators, for instance, right? Like, look at pornography. In pornography, men are predators, full stop. Um, what girl would want to grow up and enter into that kind of expectation of abuse in a relationship with a man um, and, and have to just, you know, swallow hard and pretend that it's okay? Um, so the reasons why a girl might not want to be a girl are myriad. Um, and, and the influence of social media um, and, and the pressure to be accepted and the instant acceptance that she gets when she identifies as transgender, all of those are significant cultural pressures pushing towards that end um, that, that create sort of an epidemic like we've not seen in recent history at least, in recorded history at least. So sin is never new, but the way in which um, the devil entices us into this dysmorphia, the way in which he, he invites us to reject our creator or our created reality, the way in which he invites us to question and reject the word of God, um, that may change, though his end goal is always the same. So we ought to be sensitive to the way in which these old sins entice us in new ways, even though truly nothing is new under the sun. Um, but we ought to be sensitive to our, our brothers and sisters in Christ who suffer. We ought to, we ought to speak the, the Word of God, His law and gospel, clearly to them. happens to be any other questions, um, you can uh, go to the parish hall, and I'm sure um, Pastor Hammer will uh, be willing to visit a little more. What I'd like to do is I'd like to depart by singing from our hymnal, hymn number 862.
Bless the house, what dear.